With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, welcome back to Paul's to the Wall. This is your host, Mike Paul. Today I'm joined by my brother, Nick, our good buddy, Tyler, and we are joined with Connor, is it Dragotis? Dragotis, you nailed it on the first try, which I got to tell you, that's a rarity, so thank you. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it looks the way it's spelled, fortunately. It's good. So, Connor, you met Nick and Tyler at Freedom Fest, and your specialty is public sector unions. Do you want to give us a little bit of your background and uh, what's your purpose or your causes? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I was out at Freedom Fest with uh, my employer. My nine to five is working with an organization called Americans for Fair Treatment, where I'm the director of strategic partnerships. And what we do is we help public sector employees hold their union accountable. So uh, as we'll probably get into, there's definitely situations where unions uh, try to evade uh, accountability. And uh, a lot of times teachers, nurses, firefighters, police officers, public sector employees are kind of at a loss for how to deal with those situations. So it's nice to have a nonprofit like us to step in and, and help and heck, help for free, which is even better. Absolutely. So when you say hold them accountable, is it like certain criminal actions that like the unions would otherwise help cover up or kind of something that would be a fireable offense. Normally they kind of get swept under the rug, kind of those type of instances. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting when we uh, have folks reach out to us, the situations are incredibly diverse. Uh, a lot of what we spend our time doing is first and foremost, education, uh, educating folks about their rights. It's something that uh, teachers, especially we're finding right now, uh, it's particularly prevalent because of just the nature of the world, uh, but they aren't aware of their rights. Uh, unions oftentimes get exclusive access to uh, orientations to uh, get people to join the union. Uh, and through that process, folks aren't aware of their rights about whether or not they can join the union, whether or not they have to pay. Uh, you do not have to join and you do not have to pay, uh, which is probably the, the cliff notes for anyone who wants to tune in and, and get that. Um, it's a really important thing. And, and once we can get that education in people's hands, yeah, we can help them exercise those rights. And uh, if the union continues to misbehave, we can make legal referrals uh, to get folks free legal help to sue the union, to hold them accountable, um, which is a really important aspect because, heck, paying a lawyer 500 bucks an hour to, uh, to, to protect your rights is not something a lot of teachers are able to uh, afford. Now, with the uh, current climate, this is a question I had. When we look at COVID, the obvious scenario that would pop into my mind is something like mask mandates over the last year since COVID yeah. started. And 
usually you would think that a union would step in and protect an individual's rights that belongs to the union and they would have their back if they decided to make their own choice and do something differently. But what is the teacher union response been to all the mask mandates? It seems like just my gut feeling, not that I know specifically, but that they would have the backs of the mandates coming down from the governors. What is their position been? And does it vary like state to state or how's that going? Yeah, it's definitely very diverse. So we've seen this. And one of the things that I think is so important that we talk about is that teachers are different from teachers unions, right? And I, unfortunately, so often these kind of, they, they kind of get lumped together. And we see this, uh, we have some political cartoons or, you know, commentary cartoons that we published. And uh, the phrase that we use is union splaining, right? Because it's a union pushing a teacher out of the way to kind of voice their opinion. Um, and we do see that uh, unions in many cases, especially the national unions, uh, do tend to side with these mandates and they've, they've taken votes to that effect. However, I want to point out that there are a number of unions uh, that have, have taken the effort and put in the time to say, actually, you need to enter at least into negotiation with us. This is a bargaining chip. You can't unilaterally force this on members. We have rights. Uh, you can't do that. Interestingly, uh, New York State is where this has been a really big thing. Uh, unions, uh, we put a video out about this on YouTube uh, a couple weeks ago where uh the, the governor had said, hey, mask mandates are going to be a thing. Vaccination requirements are going to be a thing. And uh, the union said, hey, got to enter into this conversation. We're going to have a we're going to have a discussion. And uh, I'd like to think that that could extend to protecting the First Amendment rights of teachers and other public sector employees and other places, because uh, unfortunately, that's something that public sector unions are not always, uh, as you alluded to, Nick, on the right side of that issue. Who, who was it? Uh, the was it the AFL CIO president? Uh, was it Weingarten, Garten or Weingart? I've seen I've seen Corey DeAngelis go back and forth with her quite a bit yes. because I think she's kind of sided with the the politicians and tried to act like the voice of all union members because I think that's one of the largest public sector unions out there, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, so Randy Weingarten is a teachers union yep. president. Uh, AFL-CIO is, 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 is separate there. Um, but I do think that you're spot on. And I love Corey. We actually, uh, we did a panel with Corey out at Freedom Fest and it was great to hear him dig in because he is a passionate guy. And, uh, and it's really true. He has been one of those folks who is holding uh, Randy Weingarten and other union officials accountable to their actual words and actions. Um, unfortunately, uh, Randy Weingarten was really on the forefront of saying, Hey, we should not have in-person schooling. This is too dangerous. Uh, and as soon as public perception started to swing, I think it was one of those cases where it's, uh, well, if you're getting run out of town, get out in front and pretend like it's a parade. Uh, so she very quickly changed her tune and Corey was one of those guys, you know, tweeting at her, posting the, the actual original sources, her quotes saying, Hey, if you're going to do this, I'm glad you're on the right side now, but it would be really nice if you were consistent along the way, because these are real people. And I think that's so important when, when folks come to us and anytime you see a lawsuit, it's, you know, Smith V so-and-so uh, and, and these legal names, but they're real people who are being hurt by these union policies and, and who have to take legal action or otherwise get involved to protect their rights. And 
their folks with families and neighbors and communities. And it's, it's really important that, that they get the protection they need. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, and, and I think that there's a lot of, you know, you kind of touched on it. There's a lot of people kind of going along to get along or they kind of get lost in the, the collective. Cause you know, I've seen it firsthand. There's a little bit of mob mentality, you know, it's, it's, it's your classic collective. So you don't, if you don't toe the line within a union, if you're a member of a union, it can, they can quickly make your life miserable. Even the other members, you know, there's a lot of peer pressure. So it, it's good that the service you guys are offering, because at least, you know, the more people know they have someone they can turn to if they don't agree with something or they feel that they're being, you know, kind of vic- a victim of some wrongdoing. That's, that's really good because I actually was under the impression that certain states you had to join the union if your employer was unionized. Yes, yeah, so that was I, I thought so too. that was something new. I I didn't I didn't know that you still had the option to be like, yeah, I'm not doing this. Yeah, <laughs> see, well, that's what useful. I mean. I, yeah, this is this is. I mean, especially in have like heavy blue states. That's most working people just assume if they get hired, it you know to an employer that's unionized, they have to join, and that's yeah. that. It's it's really unfortunate, and I think in some ways there are, there is a lot of pressure to push that narrative um, because it's, it is beneficial to the union to have people believe that, that they do need to be a, a, a part. They need to be a member. I do want to clarify something, uh, I guess, in the way that this is set up, which is that even when someone leaves the union, so let's say a teacher, for example, decides, Hey, this isn't for me anymore. I want to opt out. Um, and they, they leave they do not have to pay any money to the union, but what the union still gets to do uh, because of something called exclusive representation is the union still gets to go to the bargaining table and negotiate on behalf of that individual. So there's no competition. They say, Hey, every single teacher in this district, we have claimed a legal right to negotiate on their behalf. Um, Some folks call that free riding. Uh, I think it's much closer to forced riders, uh, folks who are stuck in this system because it's representation they don't want, they don't need, uh, but the union makes this claim anyway, and and it's it's protected under the law. Well, yeah, you know what's so funny is this this whole thing we're talking about. How uh, I mean, obviously you're immersed in it, where you see how unions kind of oppress their constituents and these people they're supposed to represent. And when you're in, you know, I think it's usually like eighth grade, maybe freshman year of high school, where you learn about like the Gilded Age and how unions first came about. And it's like these people banded together because they wanted representation yep. and didn't want to work 16 hours in the coal mine under dangerous conditions. And you watch this this idea that at its core, it's like, okay, that makes sense. Like collective bargaining. So people have, you know, better options, better work conditions, benefits, et cetera. And it slowly has kind of morphed into this monster. And especially in the public sector where you're focused, because there's that complete lack of accountability, similar to just like public sector and private sector in general. And you'd have to imagine that those unions are sort of like amplified on that same principle. It's, it's true. It's unfortunate because uh, we do see this uh, a lot of times. And I think it's really important as we look back, that's something that we hear all the time, right? Hey, well, my grandfather was in the union and it really served him well. I think it's important that folks take a look at what the union that claims to represent them is doing right now. 
because I think there are some situations where a, a union, especially at the local level, some unions do really great stuff. This isn't a blanket statement saying, hey, all unions are bad. All unions are, are, are inappropriate. What I think we are really interested in is making sure that those who want to join a union uh, have the right to do so. And on the other side, those who don't want anything to do with this organization, their rights also mean something. And unfortunately, that's where the bulk of the work is because uh, unions seem to rarely turn down someone who says, hey, I want to join a union. Uh, a union is is very happy to, to start that process. But when someone says some of the things that you're involved in, that you're advocating for, they're not what's best for me or my family, uh, that is really when things start to get a little squirrely and when people find themselves with their rights violated. Sure. Yeah. So where, where have the public sector unions been? I know I've seen a couple things. I, I think there were private sector unions, but on the topic of vaccine mandates, Oh, I said it. I said the V word on YouTube, but hopefully we don't get taken down here. But, um, but where, where have they been on uh, jab mandates as of late? And I'm, like I said, I'm sure it varies state to state, but what is the overall response been to that? Yeah, let's focus specifically on teachers unions, because I think that's really where this conversation is happening. Most of all, uh, courts generally uh, have been uh, supportive of mandates, especially in the public sector. However, it is still an active debate. I'm not an attorney. Um, what I would say is that uh, this is still an active discussion that's happening all over the place. Uh, and it's something that that folks who run into situations that they start to feel uncomfortable with um, in the public sector, if you're a public sector employee and your employer is telling you something, your union is telling you something, please reach out. Um, that's part of why we exist is, is if we can't get an answer, we will find someone who can. It's, it's really about helping people. Uh, so again, I don't want to sidestep it by saying, hey, it's a little loosey-goosey, but the reality is that it is. Uh, it's, it's a liquid uh, situation that, that there really isn't a one-size-fits-all uh, case by, you know, it has to be handled case by case at this point. So some unions have been pro some, or I should say pro, uh, you know, teacher as far as like individual choice, and then some are in favor of it. Would you say it's a mixed bag? I would say it's a mixed bag. And on the other side, I think what most unions like the New York unions that I was talking about before, a lot of what they're looking for is to get the government at the bargaining table. Now, Anytime that there's a change, that could be an opportunity to renegotiate for, hey, yes, we are going to accept these mandates, but we want higher pay. We want benefits. We want there, There's a number of things. I think what, what unions wisely are stepping up against is these unilateral decisions that don't involve them as the representative. It is a proper role of a union uh, to step in and, and talk about working conditions and wages and those sorts of things. So uh, for the government to sidestep that process. Uh, in many ways, unions are doing the right thing by saying, hey, our employees have rights as well. We need to step up and have this conversation. Yeah. Now, how much influence would you say that in the public sector teaching unions do the unions have over like decision making on the school board? Like, for instance, I'm in Illinois and we just mm -hmm. had a 75% uh, of our community was in favor of mask optional and our school board was persuaded. We went to all the meetings and they even told us they were persuaded. Um, but then the governor signed executive order, overruled the constituents. Um, but they were also catering to their union, the insurance company, and their legal team. So it's like, how much say do the constituents, you know, the taxpayers really have in this equation to begin with? And was is the union actually having behind the scenes meetings saying like, no, no, we're not doing this, or we are going to do this? I mean, how, does, how do those kind of things work in this world? 
Yeah. Well, let's, I think one of the best ways to illustrate the way that this happens in the public sector is to first talk about the private sector, where, where some things are actually going pretty well when it comes to unionization. And that is uh, when a union comes to the table with an employer, let's say they're at a factory, uh, there's a natural tension and a really healthy butting of heads because the union knows that there's only so much they can ask for before an employer no longer has enough money to do business, right? There's a finite number of resources for them to argue over. So the line is maybe there's just a smaller negotiation area and it becomes healthy because the union is willing to give up some pieces. They focus on what's most important. The employer is more likely to say, hey, let's find a common ground. In the public sector, there's a few different things that I call the vicious cycle of union money. And really what's what this comes down to is that unions end up sitting across the table from the very people that they helped get elected. And that puts it in a really tough situation because if you're negotiating against someone who you have leverage over and you have an almost, I'm going to say, unlimited amount of money, which is the taxpayer, uh, the incentives get a little screwy. There isn't that right. healthy <laughs> butting of heads. So one thing that unions have, have done really, really well, teachers unions, the two largest teachers unions spent $63 million of uh, dues money that they collected from teachers and other employees' paychecks on politics in 2019 and 2020 alone. Now, that's a tremendous amount of money, uh, but- more importantly, that is not just going to the upper echelon. It's not just going to DC. Uh, a lot of this uh, political effort and the grassroots organizations surrounding the unions uh, deals with things like school board elections. And it's that same problem. Uh, you know, Dan DeSalvo uh, has a book called Government Against Itself. Uh, and it's that title, I think, kind of sums it up really nicely. It says, hey, who's left out in the cold on this. And unfortunately, in many cases, it's the employees who the union uh, claims to represent. And it's also the the other folks who are left footing the bill at the end of the day. Gotcha. Yeah, it's it's hard, you know, because we went back and forth for like two months, you know, with the superintendent and even you yeah. tell all the teachers were on our side, but it becomes so transparent immediately how little power any of these people yeah. actually hold. Like it's, it's a hierarchy and yeah. they always answer. There's one person above them. There's their union. It's like, either you realize so much of their power is just an illusion and it's like you said the public sector where it's like they're infinitely have this money that they can it's your money they're fighting each other with um and the incentives are not aligned i mean it's kind of like that old saying where you know if a public uh school or a, pu or a private school does bad you know they go out of business but if a public school does bad they get more funding <laughs> so it's just i think that's the long and short of how yeah. public sector ver works versus private sector well, can I ask, so like in your communities, is it the, do you feel like you have a voice? Do you feel that the employees in your community, uh, that the teachers are able to stand up and voice their opinion or is it the, uh, are they a little subdued as well? You know, I, it felt like we had a lot of momentum. Um, we were the vast majority, like I said, 75% were pro mask choice. You know, you can wear it if you want. Um, and we were going to all the school board meetings. It was like, 12 to one ratio. There was 12 of us for every one pro masker at all the meetings all the energy was on our side. And even the board members, you know, they'd meet with us in the parking lot afterwards. And they were like, you know, three weeks ago I was pro mask. Like, I didn't know how you guys felt. I didn't know right. how ineffective these were. You guys completely changed my mind. So we, we had them on our side. They said we would have won, but our governor superseded our 
our say in our little 3,000 person community. Some guy, our governor couldn't even find our town on a map had more say than the parents. And that's where we stand now. So as of yesterday, I pulled my daughter out of public school and we're officially Holy homeschool cow. parents. Wow. That's a really, uh, it's a really big step. Yeah. I mean, they, they backed us into a corner and I, I promised her that thing was coming off her face and daddy does not break his promise. So <laughs> that's where I'm at. That it is interesting, all the different factors at play. And I guess I never thought about sitting next to the very people they lobbied to help get elected before. That's a, in most, in, in the, in the private world, that'd be considered a conflict of interest. <laughs> in, in the private, in the private sector, they, they do their best. I mean, it still probably happens a lot, but it wouldn't happen as easily. Yeah. Well, it's like, right. imagine, imagine you're at a bar and you're there with your best friend and then your boss is at the bar and you see your your boss and your best friend getting into a fight and they both look at you like you're about to have their back. You know, it's like, what are you going to do? Just start like kicking your own ass. I mean, it's, right. it's tough. <laughs> you see that, that conflict you're talking about. For sure. So, Connor, how did you get into this? You seem to be very passionate about it, extremely knowledgeable. Um, what was how did you get into this world and, and what what keeps you going so passionately? Yeah. Uh, you know, I started working for one of the law firms uh, that dealt with this, that deals with this issue, an organization called the Fairness Center uh, based in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, I started working for them back in 2018. Uh, and I spent three years as the director of communications uh, at that organization, helping tell the story of these lawsuits uh, as they continued to roll out, they actually, uh, the Fairness Center, I saw a press release in my inbox today. They just filed two new lawsuits uh, this morning, um, uh, which, which they announced dealing with these issues. Um, and then one of the things about working with a law firm and not being an attorney is that there's really a limit on what you can say and how you can get involved. And, and that was a big barrier for me. Uh, so when I saw an opportunity to work with Americans for Fair Treatment, which is... Uh, obviously not a law firm, uh, though we make legal referrals. It was a really great opportunity to be able to come over here and do stuff like this. Talk to people who actually care about what's going on, who want to ask questions, because really my hope is that by talking on shows like this, that by getting out there and having conversations with the community, by providing education, that, you know, my hope is that you don't need us right now but that when the situation does come along where you realize, hey, I really could use someone in my corner, that you know Americans for Fair Treatment is there to answer those questions, get you the help you need. Uh, and, and for me, that keeps me going every single morning. Uh, I used to work in, in retail right out of college uh, for Target Corporation, working in logistics. And uh, I worked in finance for a little while. And I got to tell you, there's something to be said for doing something that you care about every single day. Uh, it's incredibly empowering and it, it makes a tremendous difference. For sure. Yeah. I mean, you're, the, when you're passionate about something. You're actually, you know, you're going to perform at such a higher level than if you're just going through the motions for some job you don't care about. <laughs> I mean, I can just see it when you're talking about it. This is something that you really enjoy doing. So yeah. it, it's cool to see that. Um, I mean, so, I mean, how, how big is your organization? How was it founded and where are you guys located? What's he does a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. So uh, Americans for Fair Treatment has been around since uh, late 2014, early 2015. Uh, and we are a national nonprofit with a state focus. So what we do is, is we identify states where there are, are particular issues. Right now, we are primarily focused in Pennsylvania and New York. 
Uh, I'm talking to you now from my uh, home office in, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, and that's because we uh, do work remotely. Uh, we have uh, a talent pool that stretches across the country from Florida to Utah, DC, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and it's just a really incredible opportunity to, to bring folks together around an issue that uh, though we focus on a few states, I think people across the country are, are impacted by this. And it's really nice to um, be able to make a difference and, and see the difference, right? When I was talking before about this being real people, I think that's the, one of the biggest things that uh, folks listening to this could take away from it is that when you hear about news stories and you, and you read about lawsuits, there's someone there who's someone's son or daughter, who's a parent, who's, an, who's your neighbor. They might go to church with you. They might be on your softball team. Uh, these folks are in our communities. And uh, a lot of them feel a lot of social pressure to stay quiet when they have problems with their union and, and we want them to know, Hey, you have a community of folks who's here to support you, to be in your corner, to back you up and to get you the education you need to do what's right for you and your family. What, what are some victories that you guys have had? Like if we want to, cause we're talking kind of like big picture, like logistically how this works, but like on some very ground level things. And, and like I said, I can imagine that you guys have been very busy over the last year and a half. Uh, what what are some of those cases like to, to give people hope if they're having an, an issue with their union and they're not really sure where to turn? Maybe they're intrigued by your organization. Like what are some examples of of things you guys have done on the ground level? Yeah. So there's two things. One, I want to talk about uh, first is is the idea of community, because I want to give public sector unions and unions generally credit where credit's due. Uh, and that is that one of the things they do really, really well is they create a community. That idea of solidarity and bringing people together, it's really empowering to feel like there's someone in your corner. And that makes it even harder when that group, that community doesn't feel like home anymore because those are your people. Um, one of the ways that we've helped uh, get around that, one of the biggest wins that I would say is that we actually offer a community for free uh, for current and former public sector employees. So when folks leave the union, when they opt out and say, hey, I'm done with this, I'm not going to pay money into this organization that I don't want and I don't need, uh, you can plug in with our community, which has programming, we have networking, we have uh, liability insurance is often something that people are, are concerned about. Uh, we can hook them up with uh, oftentimes better liability insurance at a lower cost uh, than the union provides. Um, so I'd say that's one of the biggest wins that I've seen in the last uh, several years is, is being able to provide this community for folks without all of the morally compromising strings attached uh, that get so, so dicey. Um, the other thing that I'd want to point out um, that in terms of a, a really tangible win is not in the court of law, but something that we were able to accomplish in the court of public opinion. Uh, and I think that's something that that folks don't talk about enough. And maybe I just talk about it because it's something I'm particularly passionate about as a non-attorney director of communications, right? Uh, but working on these issues, being able to tell the stories of, for example, a guy named John Cabler from Pennsylvania who uh, worked for the liquor store. We have state controlled liquor stores in oh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. 
which is uh, oh, thing, right? Fine wine and spirits. Um, <laughs> John really wanted to work for them. It's a you know great job. He was uh, really really looking forward to it, and um, he went to his first day orientation, and a union rep said, "You sign this union card. You join the union, or you won't be on the schedule. You will not have a job." And so John wanting this job, signed the card only to find out months later that in fact, that hasn't been the case since the 1930s. You cannot be forced to, 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 uh, be part of a, be a union member. Um, and when he went back and he said, Hey, I was uh, misled about this. I, I, I want to leave. I want my money back. They said, no, you're stuck. You have to stay in this union for, well, until a narrow opt-out window, which occurs once every three to five years for 10 days. Wow. That's a really terrible situation for someone to be in. And when, when John uh, you know, reached out, uh, the end result of that story is that John got out of the union and he got every single penny back with interest. Um, and I think that's a really important thing. People are winning when they're stepping up, when they're telling their stories, when they're having these conversations, when they're willing to say something's wrong and I need help. Uh, there's many, many, many situations uh, where where those have happy endings, where folks are actually getting what they need and the union's held accountable, uh, which is an, an amazing thing to be, be to be a part of. Yeah, no, because I mean, it's not like, you know, a lot of let's say like lobbying groups or political advocacy mm. groups. It's like, oh, we need to have some legislation written and we need it's like this complete uphill battle. I mean, we say like, oh, it would take an act of Congress for X to happen. But I mean, really, if you're able to just enforce what's on the books and able enable or, you know, to be able to help the people that you're representing, I mean, that is a much easier battle than trying to like proactively change what's already on the books. So that is that is really cool. And just a quick side story. My uh, my in-laws used to live in uh, Pittsburgh, so I had no idea about the the state owned, you know, liquor uh, deal. And when we went there, I'm like, wait, we can't just go to the gas station for some beer. My father in law is like, no, he's like, I'll show you. So we go there and it's we go to this place. It's like, you know, and maybe this is just the one I went to, but it was like if Costco was in the Soviet Union, like there's just like <laughs> half, half the lights are out and there's just like pallets of Medello, like just laying around. I'm like, oh, this is like the DMV and like Sam's Club. I was trying to figure out like what was going on and, and like all the prices were just like crazy high. So yeah. maybe it was just the one I went to, but it seemed like it wasn't first, that much fun. Uh... This is the first time I've heard about this. I did not know about your public sector liquor stores. Yeah. 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 Well, don't get me wrong. Like I, I, you know, obviously I'm here uh, to talk as part of the uh, Americans for fair treatment, but I can put on my Connor Dragotis hat separately and say, yeah, it's a real problem. Uh, and it's something that as a, you know, as a Pennsylvanian, you know, I've been here since 2009 and it's something that we see is, and you know, in college, we used to drive over to New Jersey when we wanted to, to buy beer, buy liquor because it was better prices and it was, it was a, an easy, you had greater selection as well. Well, you know, two wins for a broke college kid. <laughs> I'm just, I feel like Illinois yeah. have been doing that since it's on the table. They would have adopted that years ago. I can't believe they haven't caught on yet. That's right. I, I couldn't believe, like I, I go, I remember saying like, wait, this has been this way for decades. And the people of Pennsylvania haven't like risen up. Like they haven't like overthrown this, this yep. paradigm. <laughs> Well, there was a there was a rebellion right after the country was founded about whiskey taxes. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So you think well, that the people the people of Pennsylvania would get a little upset about this? 
you know who else is, has a really weird one? I don't I don't think it's all of Indiana, but maybe certain counties. I think I was in Auburn, Indiana one time, and we went to get beer at the gas station, and they couldn't sell cold beer. Yeah, it had to be room temp, and we were like, we were just like, oh, that's odd. Like, we want to drink right now. I don't want a warm beer. They're like, well, if you want cold beer, you got to go to the liquor store. But the liquor store can't sell cold pop. I'm like, what? Like, this is some <laughs> weird agreement they made, like just complete bureauc- or bureaucratic nonsense. But <laughs> that sounds like yeah. it should be a bipartisan issue. Get that <laughs> fixed right away. Right. Who doesn't want the cold beer? Yeah. Yeah. Absurd, yeah. yeah. You could make I would campaign on that cause. Yeah. Right? yeah. Tyler, you might um, win. I think that's a that's a pretty I, low hang, that's low hanging fruit, that, my friend. This, that is that is, and campaign on nothing else. No, make no mention of any other policy. <laughs> Just we're getting cold beer. Um, so I, I want to know, like, what have you has has like you may not just you personally, but like your your organization. What has the response been from some of these public unions? Do they kind of try to just out of sight, out of mind you guys, or have they, have you guys had some uh, spirited conversations? How, how's that response been? Yeah. You know, I th- our, our goal is to, to lead with an olive branch, right? Like we want to be kind. We want to be human. I think, you know, we're not out here to, you know, smash and bash and tell people that they have to change their way of life to conform to, you know, what we, think is best. And I'm not sure that I don't actually, I know our organization doesn't have a stance on what is best in that, in that front in terms of uh, putting pressure on folks. Um, There is definitely an awareness uh, of what we're doing among public sector unions. I do think that uh, they, they don't have a particular interest in, in, you know, shining a spotlight on us because what we do is help people. Um, and, and a lot of times, unfortunately, uh, we're there to help in situations where there have been bad behaviors. Um, and I think it's, it's really important to point out as well that, you know, a public sector union can have bad policies, but it's a lot of times it's individuals in the unions who take these bad, they, they make bad decisions. Um, you know, there was a, a situation up in, uh, New Haven, Connecticut, for example, where, uh, you know, it was uncovered that a, a union leader uh, in the in the fire department, the state union there, was spending money on concert tickets and uh, you know expensive first class flights and bringing his fiance on trips. You know those sorts of things. There was another one in Pennsylvania where uh, a guy was writing himself uh, double checks, uh, and money that was supposed nice. to go to charity was instead being cashed into his personal bank account. Um, you know these sorts of situations are really difficult. They're frustrating. Um, to see. Um, but it also gives me some hope. Uh, I am an optimist because when you see uh, these one-off situations, uh, it's refreshing that there is a person who is doing something. And that means it's a behavior that can be fixed. Uh, I do, I, I'm, a, I'm a glass half full guy when I look at the future because uh, I see that there's a lot of, and an, an increasing number of public sector employees who quite frankly, they care and they're paying attention. And when they realize that they have the support, oftentimes uh, there are many folks walking around who uh, are rather quiet about their opinions. Um, when one person speaks out, speaks up, um, a lot of times they're finding that perhaps they aren't as lo- as alone as they thought, uh, which is pretty cool. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know what, what makes me optimistic in general is just knowing that there is a watchdog out there. Maybe there's multiple watchdogs, other organizations that do something like what you do. Cause I mean, you could imagine that without that factor, that this kind of corruption, the guy cashing, you know, checks into his account, that kind of corruption could just run rampant. So, I mean, I think that, that like having you guys just as a deterrent is doing a lot of good. Like even like it's, you know, the old, uh, uh, has let uh seen versus the unseen like maybe we see all these cases you're winning but who knows how much more corruption there would be if there wasn't a check on all these unions so that's that's pretty cool to me god that's one of the nicest things i really appreciate that thank you that's good i want to give credit to uh you know when you talk about the investigative work and shining a light on some of these bad behaviors uh our senior writer and researcher suzanne bates uh just published an article on our website uh, titled New York Union Official Allegedly Uses Benefit Money to Buy a Car and Go to Football Games. And it, you're exactly right. Like shining a light on these moments of bad behavior, that is part of the, I, I, that it personally at least, that's one of the hopes is that folks will see this and they're going to say, yes, obviously, obviously this is wrong and it could be a deterrent uh, in the future. Yeah, I, you hear so many of these stories. Like I remember one I've heard, and I have no idea if this is true. It's completely unverified, so don't, don't go investigating it. But I've heard from a couple different people that like in Chicago, which is not exactly known for being clean. Right. Um, there's like fire departments where people will put in their 30 years, they'll retire at 51 with a 90% pension. Mm -hmm. And then they'll go to another department, two towns over and, uh, they'll get a uh, 10 year after like five years or whatever, and then retire again with two pensions at 90% pay. Like I've heard multiple people tell me this kind of stuff is going yeah. on. I can't put a name. I don't know a town. I don't know a real story of that happening, but those kind of stories are all over the Chicago area. So you ever seen anything like that or that even be in the unions type? It's definitely something that I've heard of. I'm not sure that it's something that we would deal with specifically. Uh, my first thought, uh, not a legal thought, uh, definitely a good question for an attorney and something I might follow up with you guys about. Uh, we, we have uh, a really fantastic CEO who also happens to be an attorney, uh, David Osborne. Um, and, and that's a question for him because what I'm curious about in that situation is whether it would be not just possible, but in fact, covered under the law to collect one pension, then go, if you're doing the work and then you're, you become entitled to that pension. My guess is that, that I think some folks would call it double dipping, but if you're putting in the work or you're paying for both ice cream cones, don't you deserve both those ice cream cones? Um, that one would strike me as perhaps something that would need to be fixed or adjusted uh, if it comes with a huge price tag in in the legislature rather than um, or in a public relations campaign to point out, hey, guys, have you seen what's going on with our money? Uh, but I'll definitely look into that one. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, it could it could be all hearsay, but I've, I've yeah. heard from like two different people that are not related. So it's like, huh? It it is maybe. possible that it's part of the you know the bargaining agreement too, because usually yeah. they they will agree like after X amount of years of service, you get vested in the pension plan. So it's possible, yeah. and and there might yeah that that one might take PR to force you know, the politicians be like, Oh, we got to do something about this. People yeah. are, <laughs> you know, well, I mean, that, could, that could be some, some leftover cronyism from like the, the Jimmy Hoffa union era. It just seems like a mathematical <laughs> problem where it's like, well, if you're only put in 57 years of or whatever, you know, combined, but you're going to draw off it for this many more years. Like you're going to be taken more than you gave, but yeah. everyone does that. It's going to get a little top heavy pretty fast. So 
Well, and that's why you're seeing all these budget crises now and in these very unionized, you know, heavy public unionized states, they, they can't, they can't afford these pensions. And I don't know if that's something that your organization has dealt with a lot, but I, I would imagine that eventually that will probably be coming to a head. You know, when these states start to go broke and they go, uh, sorry, we can't pay you what we said we would. I mean, it's some, yeah, it's something that we haven't dealt with in terms of uh, the reality. Obviously, one of the uh, lawsuits that comes to mind is uh, Kiddo versus Erie Waterworks uh, up in Erie, Pennsylvania. There was a situation where eight Erie Waterworks employees um, ended up filing a lawsuit because the union in that situation, uh, the employer offered two different contract options, one of which would have done away with the pension for new employees to address that concern. It would have offered them a 401k, more flexible plan that is actually portable so they could take it with them. Uh, all current employees would still maintain their pension, but it would you know, phase out uh, as new employees came in. And what the union did is when they went to membership to vote on these options, they never even presented the employer option that in, that that did away with with the uh, defined benefit um, or, the, or the pension system, and the employees were furious. Um, and again, it ended up in a lawsuit where they had to say, "Actually, we do get to vote on the contracts that the employer offers. You don't have the ability to take away uh, our choice in this matter." What the union argued, interestingly, in that case, is that they have an obligation to represent not just current union members but also potential future union members who might be impacted by this. And so it was a really novel argument, but I, I think, you know, everyone at home could probably uh, think for themselves about, you know, what are the implications of that? What does that mean for a community that continues to have that line item? Exactly. And, and I don't think that, you know, I, it doesn't surprise me if there's a lack of uh, forward thinking there because, you know, they, they, tend to live in the now a little bit. Um, but yeah, cause like, let's say like hypothetically speaking that some of those members were in their earlier mid thirties, they have a lot of working years left. Yeah. That's a lot of time for a pension fund to go broke or the state to go. Yeah. Sorry. We're going to cut this. You know, you're getting 75% of your salary as pension to eh, 20. Good luck. Hope you saved. Right. Right. And, and, and I mean, that's a real thing. Like that's a real possibility that I don't know if some of these public sector unions are really thinking about when their, their employees could be doing something in a private account. Yeah. Okay. It's not a pension I get, but it's better than thinking you're going to have something and then have thing. Now, why, why is it that public sector workers don't have to have do their own private retirement fund like the rest of us? I never fully understood that where it's like, they have this guaranteed pension where the rest of us are kind of responsible for setting up our own type private 401k or IRA. I mean, is that just something that's like an incentive to join the union or, or how, how exactly does that structure work? Yeah. Well, I, I guess what I would point to is just the, the ability to negotiate the contract, right? It is one of the things that, you know, the union has the responsibility to do that. And it's a pretty sweet deal. Um, it's something that they have obviously fought for, for a reason, um, and yes, it, it comes at a cost to the taxpayer, but at the same time, uh, to frame it up, I guess, from that, that point of view, from the union's point of view, 
if they're going to be at the bargaining table and that's something they can negotiate for, it's something that they would want to negotiate for because it is a pretty sweet deal uh, yeah. to be able to have. So uh, obviously, you know, the there's probably a broader question that, you know, I don't think at Americans for Fair Treatment we would deal with about, hey, whether that's right or wrong. Um, but the the question of of how it arrives there is absolutely at the bargaining table, uh, being across from folks who are willing to put that in a contract and agree to it. Uh, and at that point, it's on paper. It's a legally binding document. And then you're it's it's there and it's and you're stuck with it. Yeah. Now, the unions don't actually manage the pension funds themselves. Right. Isn't that in control of like the state treasury or something like more along those lines? I believe it's diversified, so it depends on where, which state you're in, and and which union okay. you're represented by. Yeah, it gets a little gets a little messy there. I yeah, can imagine. You know the uh, the Illinois State Teachers Pension Fund has been underfunded for decades now. Interesting, because <laughs> the, well, the state of Illinois is in charge of that one. <laughs> right. Yeah, they're uh, yeah, they're very they've squandered it. They're very generous yeah. with other people's money. So <laughs> after, <laughs> after a while, it, uh, they you know, the chickens come home to roost eventually. Yeah, but I, I really do. I think that going forward, I think you're going to see a lot of budget crises with these states and they're, you know, especially because, okay, so if you look at states like Michigan, um, New York, uh, maybe even like Ohio, like especially Rust Belt and then, you know, California, New York states with really high cost of living, they're losing people. I mean, they're not new people aren't moving there not at the rate they're moving out. So that I think that that problem is going to be very real very soon that they're going to go when, well, you know, their tax base is going to leave. And then I think that you guys may get some new, uh, new, new cases and issues coming your way. Well, you've because definitely given me something to Google probably way too late into the night tonight uh, about which financial dire straits. It's definitely not yeah. an area that I'm I'm uh, super familiar with, but that's a fast that's that's an interesting point. It's something I'm going to have to look into. Because I mean, the only way to increase funding of of these pensions would be to raise taxes, but these states are already heavily taxed, and when your tax base that can leave does leave that can get ugly. Yeah. I think what, what's most likely to happen. Cause I think Illinois might be the canary in the coal mine with that kind of uh, quagmire that we could see that Tyler's mm-hmm. laying out. And I think what will probably happen is there's going to be some sort of like federal bailout to the state that's financed by the federal reserve. And they're just going to turn on the printing presses. Cause I mean, if you make a, like to, to take the union side of this, if you are, you know, a government worker and you, you're, you belong to a union and you were promised this, the state has an obligation to fulfill that. You know, it's like, you could say, Hey, it's a bad deal, but it's like at the end of the day, they made this deal with these employees and they have uh, an obligation to make good on them. Who knows exactly where that cost is going to be bared at the end of the day. But um, yeah, no, that could be something very interesting. And I don't think we're going to solve it on this podcast tonight. That's for sure. (laughs) So close. So close. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Chicago is a beast of its own. So uh, every state's got one. <laughs> so, um, I mean, yeah, we're, we're closing in a little after 45 minutes here. Any any other things you want to touch on? Any uh, more points you wanted to hammer home for the listeners? Yeah, you know, I think one of the most important things that I would want people to be aware of is just I I know that, you know, you three uh, are, are passionate people, but 
you know, hand hand raised here. Did any of you wake up this morning and and scour the papers or the internet for public sector union updates? Probably not. Can't say right? that. Maybe because no, I, you knew you were talking to me this evening, but yes. <laughs> I, I try not to get too upset that early in the day. Very fair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and all that is only to say that uh, I, I, part of what I care about is I, I want people to understand that this is an issue that impacts folks uh, across the board. Uh, if it's something that you're not aware of, it's likely uh, something that's impacting your community. It might be impacting someone you know, it might be impacting someone that you love. Uh, so uh, to a certain extent, I'd love it if folks were at least aware of this issue. Uh, it was a normal part of their conversation um, to, to be aware of what's going on and how it might be impacting folks. Um, because a lot of folks, again, uh, there's a tremendous amount of pressure uh, when you're part of uh, a union to kind of toe the line. Uh, and maybe not speak up and uh, being a voice, being a good friend, being someone who could say, hey, if you're experiencing anything, talk to me because I have a resource I could refer you to. Um, I'd love to you know, be that resource and be on the other side to help. Um, but for any of your listeners, uh, just know that there are folks out there working to uh, make this make this a better place, make this country uh, work a little bit better. And um, we're there for public sector employees to help them hold their union accountable. That's, that's really awesome. I, you know, I, it's, it's not something, especially growing up in a very, very heavy union state that I even knew was a thing. I thought that once you signed up, you were, you just had to accept it. So that's, you blew my mind today. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't know this and it's, I'm still, I've been thinking about it the entire time. Like, wow, I didn't know that. And I, I bet you that what you said, most people, 90, I would say 95% of public union uh, members don't have any idea. Absolutely. And well, uh, we're, we're going to post the link um, to your page as well after this, but where can people find you if they're listening and they want to know how to get in touch, if this it applies to them, how can they find you? Yeah, for sure. So the easiest place is going to be at americansforfairtreatment.org. I'm also going to drop the uh, our YouTube link, Twitter link, and Facebook link. Uh, we also put out a weekly newsletter that I would highly recommend. Uh, it's written by uh, by by our um, executive director, and it's not just informative. It's also witty. It's clever. There's some great fun content in there um, that, that helps uh, folks learn about this issue in a really approachable way. Uh, you can uh, subscribe to that at americansforfairtreatment.org. Uh, all the way down in the footer is the sign-up link. Awesome, Connor. Well, this has been very informative and really enjoyed talking to you and we're happy to do it again sometime. So I'm sure there'll be plenty of content to talk about over the next couple of years and a lot more stories. So Yeah, I was uh, going to yeah. say, I'm going to give give the article you sent over a read after this. That sounds really fascinating. It's a fun one. So hopefully you'll be able to sleep after. Yeah, take a look. And yeah. uh, guys, <laughs> huge thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it and uh, love the program. You got a subscriber for life here. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, and for the listeners, please uh, head over to iTunes, rate and review, and um, follow us on Twitter at Paul's to the Walls with a Z. And Tyler and Nick, you guys can give your plugs. I can't keep them all straight anymore. <laughs> I'm uh, at Kimura King ninety four K I M U R A K I N G nine four. I'm at Schlitz underscore Beer for now until I get a cease and desist letter. <laughs> <laughs> you got to sell that handle, my friend. I know, <laughs> right? And any social plugs for you, Connor? What was that? Is there any social plugs for you? 
Yeah, you can check me out at C.D. Dragotis. Uh, I wrote a book called Work for Liberty to help folks uh, find full-time work in the liberty movement. Uh, so if anyone is looking for help on that front, uh, I spend a lot of my free time uh, helping people out there. Awesome. Well, Connor, thanks again. Have a great night. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.